The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest completely phoned in holiday show. It's Wednesday, December 26, 2018. On today's show, what do we do? We answer listener questions, questions from you, our faithful earbud compatriots. Uh, sent in to some weird digital neverland retrieved by us listened to here and responded to by and large candidly and off the cuff does that basically describe it julia turner i believe so there's no secret sauce here we got nothing to hide anyway i'm joined by julia turner who is the let me see if i can get it right okay okay you are deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times newspaper in charge of arts and culture. Pretty good. (laughs) Is there any qualification you would place on that, Julia? I think the technical title is arts and entertainment, but uh, I think we can call that a win. I forgot that in LA, entertainment is culture and culture is entertainment. My bad. (laughs) It's a subject of some debate, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and we're joined, of course, by Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, hey. All right. Well, as I said, this we, we junk our usual three-topic format, uh, and instead we just uh, we just play badminton, you know, with the with the listeners. Let's with uh, the birdies say, of your questions. Yes, shuttlecock. All right, Dana Stevens, which English novel, shuttlecock? What do you mean that that's a, a key word in that novel or in the yeah. title? Yeah. Hmm. Oh God, I probably haven't read it. I don't know. I'm I'm going to guess oh the good soldier. Yeah, at the end this person feels as though I think it's a woman that she has been simply a shuttlecock in the drama of others and sits in like a sanitarium somewhere just saying the word shuttlecock over and over <laughs> and over again. And I think the three of us has to we have to, one day we have to draw lots to see which one of us gets to sit in the sanitarium staring at the horizon with a pile of <laughs> pile of weighted blankets on us saying shuttlecock over and over I again. I actually but, volunteer for that position. That sounds relaxing. So, so do I. It's the it's the long straw. I'm here to tell you. All right. <laughs> Enough. Uh, let's uh, let's 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 field a question. Hello, my name's Althea and my question for the team is do you like holiday music? Does it drive you crazy? If you do like holiday music, um, what type do you like? Do you like the more modern um, modern music or holiday classics or no lyrics at all? Um, I just want to hear your guys' opinion on it. I think I have a pretty good idea of who's going to say what, but I want to see if I'm right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we found the tagline for our show, I think. <laughs> Confirm my biases. <laughs> We've talked, I think we've done a whole segment before on on Christmas carols and which ones we can't stand and the whole experience of hearing holiday music. But I am still curious about the kind of specifics, like what what is your actual visceral reaction, you guys, when you're in a grocery store and you hear the Christmas music fire up? How upset do you get if it's too early in the season? I myself like to portion out my Christmas spirit and only get started in mid to late December or else you're just sick of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But I can enjoy, I have a couple Pandora channels of holiday music, one for baking alongside that's more kind of pop 
And uh, and then I just love old English carols and kind of traditional classical Christmas Christmas songs. I think we talked about this before. My favorite official Christmas carol that I always have to hear at least once every season and preferably the simplest arrangement possible is Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Love that song. It has incredible lyrics. Like if you listen to all the, the words, it's just a beautiful poem. Maybe it was a poem that was set to music. I don't know. And then there's certain modern ones that I kind of feel like the season's not here till I've heard them, but I don't need to hear them more than a couple times. And those would include Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad, of course, and uh, the John Lennon Yoko Ono War is Over song. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't have a huge chip on my shoulder about Christmas music. But of course, there are the duds that nobody wants to be stuck on a long grocery line hearing, chief among them probably the little drummer boy. Mm-hmm. Didn't we once we had a listener who wrote in saying that he had an annual competition he participated in who could go the longest <laughs> without yeah. hearing little yeah, drummer? You guys on that thread, he looped he looped us into yeah, yeah. his like listserv and it was this seemingly continents wide concatenation of people who gathered every uh I think starting with Thanksgiving and then whoever could go longest without organically hearing Little Drummer Boy in any context <laughs> won the game. Yeah. It's kind of a great game, although I would say that it made me it made me hate Little Drummer Boy because as fun as the contest was, somehow I couldn't figure out how to stop getting all the emails about it. <laughs> and at first I felt very happy to be included in this a fond group of strangers, and I was like, wait, I get too many emails already. I, I figured I, it out eventually. I know. It was quite the flood. It was sort of a master of your own domain style competition. It was but very... The great part of it, though, is that it has absolutely no agency whatsoever. You're completely passive as to whether or not you're going to hear the little uh, drummer boy unexpectedly. Yeah, well, and in fact, I, th- I thought of that contest, Julia, just the other day because I was in the grocery store getting some baking supplies and on it comes, the endless mm, droning mm. 200,000 <laughs> verse Christmas song. Which to me, the funniest line in the entire thing is when the kid is like halfway through the song. We've been listening to this thing for go on forever. And the kid says, shall I play for you? And then there's Mary <laughs> nodded. I love the line Mary nodded. And just picturing her polite face like, fine, play your goddamn or, or, drum. Or like Homer nodded, right? She falls asleep. Yeah. I bet Mary's nodded Mary off nodded several off. times. <laughs> I uh, that perversely that contest kind of made me like the song more. Like I don't actually find it to be the most annoying Christmas carol. So what is? <laughs> Oh, I don't. I cannot get exercised about Christmas carols. There's one. Um, I think we had an album, like a record album, of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing a bunch of Christmas carols, starting with "Do You Hear What I Hear," that we played whenever we trimmed the tree when I was a kid. So it's like twelve songs or whatever, including "Oh Holy Night," which is my absolute favorite because it's so fun. To sing and so impossible to sing without revealing how hard it is to hit that high note with any fidelity. So I like sort of high soaring chorale, like almost religious versions of Christmas carols.
Ooh, that's mm. kind of exactly the version I don't like. I think I'm more into the lo-fi versions. Actually, choral is my least favorite kind of, of music to listen to overall, large choirs. What about you, Steve? you got to name your favorite and your least favorite. Well, all right. So I'll, I'll coming at that obliquely, I mean, I would say that um, I used to really love, I think before it was ubiquitous, before you could watch on demand the, the Snoopy Charlie Brown Christmas special, I did love the Vince Guaraldi. I mean, I just grew up with it before it became a, a, a ubiquitous fetish. Um, and I just, I, the thing that makes me saddest is how that has really kind of, I hate to say it, jumped the old shark. That it, it is now so associated with the Christmas season, it's become my little little drummer boy. It's gone from like my gateway drug to Bill Evans, you know, to, to being... Um, to being kind of a, dra- a drag to hear. Uh, but you don't hear pa- it that often. I don't feel like I unless feel like... you're watching the special. I mean, you don't just listen no. to Christmas radio and hear Vince Guaraldi. No, 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 no. It is somehow, I think it has been licensed in a new way this year. I may be totally wrong about this. I have heard it over and over oh, and over. Oh, in ads and stuff in like that? In ads oh, and public spaces. And it's this Pavlovian signal that it's time to go out and start, you know, uh, blowing up the credit card. And I, it just kind of bums me out what's happened to it because I do uh-huh. think it's a it's a beautiful and evocative piece of music. Um, mm, you know what song I love from that album that isn't sort of the main theme and it's not the one that kids the kids dance to in that scene. It's the skating song. I think it's called yeah. Skating. The one that's kind of like a descending figure. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful song. That is lovely. I mean, that is really beautiful. Um, uh, I really, I've said this before on the show, but years ago, I really loved the waitress's song, Christmas Rapping. I just, I heard it once at like an absolute fucking total winter nader of my life and it just lifted my spirits and it's never failed to do it ever since and it's not overplayed it's kind of half disappeared i i traditional christmas carols i guess i could sort of do with them or do without them but i've had a moment of dark winter zen lately which is i accompany my younger daughter to her piano lessons um on tuesday afternoons and uh she has a wonderful wonderful piano teacher i mean just one of these kind of hidden backbones of a community um a wonderfully supportive um woman uh and um and what she does is she makes this effort to go into the city and find sheet music for um alternately or 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 creatively and more modernly arranged classics including now this time of year christmas carols so my daughter is playing like literally playing jingle bells but the voicings are out of a bill evans record right they're they're like i mean, I, I don't have the vocabulary for them but i mean they're filled with i guess like major sevenths and odd you know interesting modulations and they're so evocatively beautiful and sitting in this waiting room looking out at this kind of barren field in the Hudson Valley as I tip tap on my laptop and the sun is going down and you get that just absolutely gnawing winter chill that enters the air as the sun descends over the treetops hearing these old chestnuts um, reimagined you know and it's like my child's little fingers playing I'm sorry it's just so fucking evocative and moving and that's my Christmas this year oh Oh, man. I love that. Wait, I forgot one more that I want to mention, though. I think we've also talked about this on the show at some point. The Bob Dylan Christmas album is so weird, and I love it. (laughs) Ooh, I love it. All right, before we dig in any further, uh, I'm sure we've got some business. Dana, what do you have? 
Thanks, Steve. One piece of business today is to remind listeners who are listening now the day after Christmas, so maybe they're not in the market for gifts unless they give gifts at New Year's. But if you need a cozy place to get a hoodie and some socks, check out the Slate shop at shop.slate.com. They are offering a cozy gray Slate branded hoodie that our producer Benjamin Frisch swears by and also some jaunty Slate socks, which I just ordered for my entire family for Christmas. If you want to wear some Slate merchandise to prove your love for the magazine and to help support the journalism we do, you can go to shop.slate.com. And secondly, in Slate Plus today, we're just going to take an extra question from listeners. We had so many good listener call-in questions that we rambled on and on for far too long in the studio with June. It was really fun. We couldn't stop answering questions. So we're going to save one of those and stick it in Slate Plus for those of you who are kind enough to subscribe. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing this show and all your other favorite shows. And of course, in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of this show and all the other great Slate shows and many other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, onward. Hi, my name is Emily. My question is about whether your sort of tastes and um, relationship with cultural material has changed since having kids. I have young kids, a two and a five-year-old, I have found my taste has changed sort of against my will. I have a lot less tolerance for violence, things that have no ending, things that involve any sort of um, violence against children. These are all things that I tolerated quite well before having them, and now I just think that it's narrowed my perspective on what is enjoyable. Um, I I watch a lot more mainstream stuff, a lot less indie stuff. It's strange, but it's just sort of what has happened. And I just wonder if any of you have experienced something similar. And maybe if you've bounced back from it, which would give me hope now that you have older kids. Anyway, I would love to hear you guys discuss if having kids specifically changed your relationship with culture. Love the show, of course. Thanks. Bye. I this is such an interesting question. I do not feel that having children has changed my taste in culture. As listeners know, I was not a super gore or scares fan ahead of time. So maybe I've just always been a wuss. Um, I think what it has changed is the amount of time that I have to spend on culture. Um, my husband and I last night were talking about the show How I Met Your Mother for some reason. And I was like, did you watch that? And he was like, yeah, we used to watch that together. And I was like, we did? I thought of it as like a thing that I was a fan of that he didn't like that much that I'd, I don't know, that that it had been a solo watching endeavor of mine. And I was like, did we used to just like come home and sit down and watch How I Met Your Mother? What was that? <laughs> when do we have time for that? Um, so, so I think the time constraint is probably the thing that's changed the most for me. Mm. Yeah. I, I, so on the time constraint, watching live sports has fallen away completely from my culture-consuming diet. I used to be, you know, I used to be sort of a Mets, Jets, Knicks, Rangers addict, and it's just gone. It's 100% gone. I now, quote-unquote, follow them by reading box, box scores and that's about it. But, uh, you know, I'm curious, Dana, what you think. I would say, weirdly, I was going to say, yes, I became a softy. I, I, I've always really hated super graphic violence um, anyway. But, you know, my, my older daughter went through a period where she was kind of 
purging her or, or, or finding a way to cope with her inner darkness by getting really into manga and anime, which can be super violent. And it was, I thought, the opposite of disturbing that she was doing this. I actually did think it was totally, because she herself draws obsessively. She was imitating that style. This was when she was like nine. This is years ago, five, six years ago. Um, you know, it gave her a way of narrativizing or externalizing, you know, a lot of what was going on internally with her and then doing something, you know, herself kind of fanfic and creative with it. And we watched a lot of it together. And I was surprised at, first of all, how how good some of it, I mean, not like beyond good, like just astonishing um, some of it is. Uh, and it was super violent. And I was able to kind of tolerate it in the kind of in the grim fa- fairy tale mode, like something about the developing consciousness of young people actually responds in a salutary and ancient way to something being hyper violent and kind of cru- like dealing with the cruelty of the of the universe uh so a slightly counterintuitive response though in all of the things that i watch independently of my kids i have a lower and lower tolerance for kind of a, a hipster callousness when it comes to violence or cruelty in in humor which was a very dominant post tarantino uh, style in 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 in, in, in mainstream began with Tarantino and, and mainstream very quickly and I always re- was repelled by it and still am. But anyway, what do you say, Dana? Yeah, I recognize this person's dilemma or or experience um, a lot in terms of having an, a young kid. I do think that my tolerance for horrifying things, especially to children or otherwise defenseless beings, probably increased. But I never had a huge taste for that before. But then again, factor into all this that I am a movie critic, so I have to see a lot of stuff that might be pushing those boundaries anyway. You know, I couldn't completely withdraw from the world of watching Tarantino movies or, you know, whatever, Asian horror movies in which horrific body horror things happen to people. And I think those things did become slightly more intolerable for a while. I would say that it lightens up somewhat when your own kid is old enough, as you say, Steve, to take on some of the darkness of the world and you can start incorporating those stories without it maybe violating quite as many primal directives to to care for your child. But yeah, I think this also may just be part of growing up and growing older. I'm sure that having children probably increases this sense, but I think just the approach of one's own mortality and that of everyone one loves probably makes you a little bit less prone to take in as much hardcore kind of culture as you can the way I used to do in my 20s. Even just in terms of the amount of cinematic experience or televisual experience I can take in in a day, I feel like it's not what it used to be. You know, I think Mm -hmm. I used to be able to do things like go to a film festival and see three or four really intense movies in a day. And then at the end of the day, kind of feel like, whoa, you know, I partied hard at the movies today. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not sure that I I would consider that near as valuable an experience as seeing one or two and actually thinking about them. Um, So, yeah, I guess maybe this is a very equivocal response to this person. But I think if there's a part of her that loves and misses watching movies that had, you know, strange unresolved endings is one of the things she mentions or, you know, awful mm. things happening to people who don't deserve them. I mean, if you if you don't want your watching to become permanently anodyne and be barneyized by having children, I don't think that you should worry about it because I feel like your natural uh, taste and kind of desire to quest for those things will will reassert itself when you have some more sleep and your kids are a little older. Can I can I ask you guys an unrelated question about movies and fear? Mm. Kind of a kind of a question 2.5 from listener Julia Turner. Um, so my children 
don't watch movies yet. Like they, and I'm not, I don't want to pretend to be some virtuous screens weirdo. Like they love TV. They watch, you know, Paw Patrol and Team Umizoomi and whatever else. But somehow being like enthralled to a single narrative for two hours and the kind of inevitable dramatic arc of that longer narrative, they find terrifying. And they've basically watched like no full-length movies or they don't regularly watch any. They, we showed them Finding Nemo when they were too young to know they didn't like it. We tried to take them to a movie theater to see Singing in the Rain and like just the um, – I don't know the state, the sense of stakes. Like they, they feel spooked by movies. Mm. And in our, we described the plot of Moana to them two years ago, uh, at one point, and and I looked up online like when are kids old enough to see Moana, and the answer was six. And so we have in mind that we're all going to like watch Moana on their sixth birthday. But I had sort of assumed two years ago that they would have like gotten around to watching a couple more tender films before then but their sixth birthday is in like six weeks and they they find all dramatic arcs terrifying like <laughs> heads heads don't have to get sawed off like i don't I've, i like and i see some of my friends who love film posting on instagram their children like wrapped at you know judy garland and all all kinds of stuff kids who are much younger and i'm like well i think i fucked it up like i missed the window my kids are never gonna like me like what <laughs> i don't i don't what do i do Hmm. I mean, maybe it just has to do with the length of the arcs they can take. I mean, I assume that the TV shows they watch have such a thing as villains and conflict and story arcs, right? They're not they don't only watch. I was going to say My Little Pony, but My Little Pony has tons of villains. I mean, anything they watch is going to have suspense of some kind. So maybe it has to do with the duration and the pasting of the suspense that they're not used to in a full length movie. Something like that. I mean, they watch a lot of these shows that... Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like modest suspense and then like math problems, I think. But there's like car, yeah, there's villains. I, I, there's there's bad guys in all of these worlds. They're all like rescue hero teams. They got to be rescuing somebody from something. I don't know. It's very strange. I, I, I uh, I'll report back on this matter later. I suppose. I mean, one piece of advice I would give is don't push the movie theater thing. The first time I took my daughter to a movie theater, actually, the first time I took her to see, to see a movie in the theater, it was Ponyo, and it was at a little, you know, multi-screen oh, indie theater, and she absolutely loved it. And Ponyo is still one of her favorite movies. But the first time I took her to a real big mainstream kind of giant movie, it was Pirates of the Caribbean four or something like that. And uh, and it was awful. She cried and it was too loud and we didn't make it through 15 minutes of that movie. And she was probably five years old. And I think that completely had to do with the, the place, you know, the booming sound, big dark room full of people she doesn't know. It's just like a new experience for her. Um, so maybe start them with movies at home, like show them My Neighbor Totoro. I mean, what kid is not going to want to watch every minute of that movie? And it's practically conflict-free. I mean, the the conflicts in it are so deep that only an adult will really understand them as conflicts. <laughs> there is a part about the, the sick mother being away at a hospital, but everything turns out fine. And a big, puffy, gray forest spirit flies in whenever you need him. And it's so wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I just maybe if you can get them all the way through that at home, they'll at least understand that a two-hour viewing experience can be welcoming and wonderful. Yeah. I think also now that we're all living in the same city, maybe like a cozy movie afternoon will become more of a thing. I feel like in our life of having just these weekends together, we've, we've had this very like, let's all go do things talking to each other face to face the whole weekend. So maybe we'll have a little more chill time time. Okay, thank you for letting me interject. Let's get back to a listener question. 
Hey, Gapfesters, it's uh, Daniel calling from Vancouver, Canada. Uh, my question is, um, what kind of hobbies do you guys have or maybe have uh, currently picked up uh, that you enjoy? Um, we know about uh, birding, I think, uh, Julia. Uh, we don't know too much else, so maybe a, a new hobby or a fascinating hobby or a uh, future wanted hobby. Be fun to know. Cheers. Have a great day. Oh, this is this is an embarrassing one for me because I don't really think I have hobbies. All my life I've wanted a hobby, but it seems like everything I like to do, everything I like to do is essentially the same kind of thing. And whenever I try to branch out into a different kind of thing, this is just such a bad testament to my poor character, but I, I don't stick with it because I'm not good at it. I think there's a part of me that is just, I'm I just have thrown it in with words and I'm always wanting to read for a hobby essentially or watch movies which is sort of part of my job so it's very silly i mean i've tried i bake i like to bake but that doesn't really count as a hobby i mean i don't make i don't make crafty things the hobby that i would most like to have but since daniel also mentioned future ones is uh is sewing i would i love textiles and clothes and i love the fabric stores and trim and things like that and i love the idea of sewing but sewing is so hard. Everyone says it's easy, but actually every time I've tried to make something, even just a very simple, like a square bag, it's just tricky. It requires a lot of precision. And honestly, I would need to take a class. And I know I can take a sewing class, but uh, I'm intimidated by things like that, by crafts. Um, But that is a hobby I would like to take up. I can play about six songs on the ukulele and I never get any better (laughs) or ever learn any others. But Steve, you you have guitar. You can answer this much more interestingly than me, because essentially when left alone, I gravitate to the same bookish endeavors that I would be doing if I were on the clock. Yeah, no, my my hobby is year after year after year of playing guitar and not getting better. And um, I've perfected that. But um, you, you learn new songs, right? Yeah, no, I do. And uh, yeah, like it just is, just, it just doesn't, it doesn't matter to me that I'm not very good. And I do like learning new things. Like, you know, I know, Julia, you're a fan of the later replacements which like real true hardcore replacement fans reject but that album um uh, all shook down which is a great record so i just was it's so hard to figure out what paul westerberg is playing and i just discovered someone on the web saying oh a lot of those songs are in open e and he's doing this weird claw-like thing with his hand and i was like i want to try that weird claw-like thing with my hand so i tuned my guitar to open e and all of a sudden all these weirdly voiced but kind of wonderful chords um are available to you like sliding your, your claw up and down on open e and it's just it's fun and it's just so cool to say, oh I've wanted to make like that album came out 25 years ago or whatever it is it's like I've wanted to make those sounds on a guitar for 25 years and now thanks to the internet this thing that my ear just can't possibly discern on its own you know is available to me and it's like that just to me is like that is really that is it just having a just having a half decent guitar within arm's reach when I get you know, frustrated with everything else about life, I can bang on it. Is that's Ooh, that's. It. I want to hear this. I want to hear the Met Kafferberg, uh quartet. <laughs> I was I was actually going to request Steve next live show. Bring your guitar, and we will all sing my favorite song from that album, or at least the one I get in my head all the time. Bent out of shape. Oh, that one's so good. Such a good song. I was thinking merry go round, but sure, let's do bent out of shape. Anyway, let's do something from All Shook Down at our next live show. Deal. Deal. This brings me to singing, a hobby no one hopes I will take up.
Okay, well, I feel like I talk about the hobbies I do have on this show all the time and bore our listeners to tears with them. But uh, birding has become like a relatively serious hobby, or I guess by serious, I just mean regular pursuit and source of pleasure. So birding. Um, (laughs) The birding hobby has taken me to such extremes that in – When I was in Shanghai, I emailed some birdie people I knew who connected me to some other birdie people I didn't know who told me the best birding spot. And I, like, hired someone to drive me two hours at five in the morning to this, like, weird industrial wasteland by the ocean where I watched a bunch of birds by myself because I couldn't find a guide and then tried to identify them. And it was a very pleasant, solitary time in a marshland very, very far from home or anyone I knew um, looking at nature being rapidly industrialized with like PVC piping lying in the mud all around me and various builders and diggers and derricks all far away watching a beautiful marshland slowly being desecrated and many, many birds who probably wouldn't be there for long. So that's the kind of joy that birding can bring you. Um, I love knitting. I really enjoy working with color, and there's a way in which knitting patterns, color patterns, is kind of like mosaic work, like you can make patterns and shapes in grids. Um, A couple years ago, I knit hats that said my son's names for each of them, and then we promptly lost them, and then I was like, I'll do it again, and I knit one for one son last winter, and then didn't get around to the other son, and now I've moved both of them to California, (laughs) so I've probably scarred them both for life by, like, I'm knitting two hats for one child and only one hat for the other. I have to, like, dutifully finish this useless winter hat in California for equal opportunity hat wearing. I'm going to have to find, like, a really lightweight merino or something but then the poor first completed hat child is going to be like have beads of sweat rolling down his tanned brow (laughs) on his way to like surf in the morning or whatever um okay so knitting is hobby too i love cooking and baking i wish that they were not hobbies i wish it was like part of the rhythm of my life that i cook dinner every day and i compare myself to my parents and their wonderful habit of home-cooked family dinner every night Uh, unfavorably on regular occasions. But I find the pleasure of making a meal to be very satisfying, and I do it sometimes. And I think I'm going to have to do it more in California because the takeout situation is kind of bleak. Um, The produce situation is excellent, and the takeout situation is not uh, the manner to which I am accustomed. Um, There are so many hobbies I want to take up, though. So given that I like making patterns with grids, it seems like I should try needlepoint. Needlepoint, the the problem with needlepoint is that, like, the practice and design seems potentially very cool, but then the things you end up with seem kind of, like, dainty. They seem, it seems like no matter what, how badass your needlepointing aesthetic ambitions are you end up with a dainty object of the sort that I'm not sure I would want. <laughs> but the daintiness becomes okay as somebody who loves granny decor just make needlepoint things for me and I will happily display them among my other granny things but that's well, the whole is, fun point there... of needlepoint is you take like a fun catchphrase you have with someone or something weird that doesn't belong on a pillow and then put it on a pillow I still love that if I, I could did do I should report I would do this that. to our listeners who have followed our favorite emoji conversations over the years so uh, close listeners who remember that Dana's family symbol is the octopus emoji may also remember that 
that my sister and I have a habit of sending each other the ear of rice emoji, which is like the waving wheat stalk, which was redesigned with an iOS redesign a couple years ago. And ruined? And ruined and went gone from went from being like a ten uh, kind of serene dune grass type wheat stock to this like grotesque cornucopia like plump beans of grain like <laughs> weighing down the stock falling off a stock um, <laughs> which we still send to each other and and have stopped seeing the grotesquery of but I did take a screenshot of the old emoji before I upgraded my iOS and then I hired someone on Etsy to make a needle points of the old emoji. Twin needle points. So my sister and I both have needle points of the old ear of rice emoji to remind us of our serenity uh, icon. That is such a sweet gift. I love that. In some in some hypothetical future, I would be able to do that needle point myself. Language. Wish I could spend the rest of my life just learning new languages. Like what fun! One of the fun things about going to China was awakening the like small chunk of my brain that studied Chinese for a year in college and just. Ugh, the joy of comprehending a new language is so delightful. What it teaches you about your own language, what it teaches you about the commonalities of human nature, what it teaches you about the distinctions of culture. I, I if I could like retire now and be one of those people who just like goes to a new country every two years and tries to learn a language, I feel like my mind would be blissfully occupied, even if my life would be drastically disrupted. Um, and I actually, one thing I really want to do here in Los Angeles is learn Spanish. For a long time, I never tried to learn it because uh, since I know Italian a little bit, I thought I would just get confused and sort of only half know either. But my children have started studying Spanish in school, and I hope we can find a school here where they can continue that. And it seems like this is the right city in which to commit to learning Spanish. Uh, And then singing is actually one of the things. I love to sing I think I've spoken about this before, and in fact, one of our listeners is a voice coach who has reached out to me about this, but I think I have bad voice control, and that's part of why I have vocal fry, about which I am not ashamed, but about but which is a true quality of my voice, and I feel like learning to sing, like being like taking singing lessons would teach me things about my body and communication that would be fun. That's a lot. I have so many hobbies I want to take up. Plus, I like swimming, but that's not really a hobby. That's a athletic pursuit. Yeah, if we can count swimming, then I get to say I have a hobby because I love that. But that's I feel like even baking is yeah, kind of pushing okay. it. Baking is like is can you really say that's a hobby? I guess if you were great at it, I don't I don't really deserve to say it's a hobby because I'm not you know creating like macaroon towers or something. <laughs> yeah, maybe you have to be like in the fondant game to count baking as a hobby, which I am not. All right. Well, for our next question, which is a, a UK-oriented um, query, we're joined by June Thomas. Hey, June. Hello, a UK-oriented query. <laughs> 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 oh, that's great. Uh, what's is that your official job title now? It or is, is there... actually, yeah. I'm actually yeah. senior, a UK affiliated <laughs> query, but you know, I don't stand on ceremony. <laughs> All right. Let's listen to the query. Hi, Culture Fest. My name is Justin. I'm calling from London. Long time, first time. Very long time, in fact. I've been listening to the show from the very beginning. And if memory serves, uh, you discussed There Will Be Blood and Juno on that first episode. And even though I didn't agree with your views, I loved your analysis, and I've been an avid listener ever since. So, my question to you is this. What is your favorite cultural import from the UK, and what cultural export to us are you most proud of? I look forward to your thoughts. Thank you. 
think Justin might be from South Africa originally, I'm just saying. So maybe he's an important to the UK, which is great, which is wonderful. Don't That's the wrong. second mysterious accent because we had a caller from Canada who sounded like he might be Irish to me. Mm. So there's lots of cross There's so much movement around happening. the world today. It's a wonderful thing. Oof, what import? Well, I think we can all agree not love actually, despite <laughs> Hugh Grant's stirring speech. <laughs> okay, I actually have an answer because I, for whatever reason, nostalgia, bad taste, whatever, I watch a lot of British TV shows these days because it has become easier and easier to watch essentially British TV almost live. Um, services like BritBox, Acorn, they bring British shows over and BritBox especially actually has shows that aired that week, like things like Question Time, which is a big British institution, and the soap operas, uh, and then the sort of quasi-soap operas, uh, kind of medical shows that are on every single week in Britain, like Holby City and Casualty. And I think that even though I, I imagine that not very many people on a kind of per capita basis have um, access to the, to that channel. Um, I think that the availability of British soap operas in America is really a huge breakthrough and I'm very proud of it because British soap operas are so different. They tend to be about working class people, a uh, little bit performatively so perhaps, and um, and kind of ordinary things and, ordin you know, they're much more ordinary, like, again, performatively in a way that American soap operas are performatively wacky. And even though I wouldn't claim that watching, for example, Coronation Street gives you a sense of life in the northwest of Britain, it's not that far out of it. And and so I think that's a really useful like correction to the whole like Downton Abbeyfication of that view of Britain where we're all in long frocks and half of us are servants and the other half are toffs. Like, mm -hmm. there's, you know, it's just like a little bit of a more nuanced view. And also, like, they're on all the time. And it it's it's kind of amazing. And I, I so uh, you can also see some of them on Hulu. So, yeah, British soap operas, bring it. I'm you know, glad they're here. I got to say, we mm. brought June on because we thought she would help clarify this question <laughs> of what has been the most important British import and... What export are we most proud of? But your answer suggests to me that you're the exact wrong person to talk about this because, like, I don't think Americans really care about Coronation Street. I think they're only being imported to you. That's like, possibly I mean, true. Entirely, that might like, be true. That might be true. It's they don't. They're not having like a Beatles level impact or whatever. <laughs> um, but this is but this is favorite and not right. It's not Family Feud. Like we're not. <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Good point. I just think, like, as a, uh, my favorite British import is June Thomas. Obviously. So, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, stipulated. Cultural import also sounds like it has to be modern to me. I mean, can we just say the social novel? Like, can we go that far <laughs> back? Or do we have to be talking about, you know, things that are happening in the post-industrial age? Like, we uh, culture, Western culture in general would not be the same without the big honking, you know, Dickens, George Eliot style. Yeah, exactly. The English language. How about it? <laughs> Oh. oh, yeah. Let's get somewhere between yeah. the two things. Somewhere in between. How yeah. about how about this then? How about Shakespeare, Jane Eyre, Middlemarch, Orwell, Larkin, The Beatles, Prime Suspect, the films of Bill Forsyth? <laughs> Mike dropped. That's pretty good. Yeah, decent. Um, I feel like Wales and Northern Ireland have, have been ignored in that roundup. So, uh, you know, in the, in the hope... <laughs> And uh, Dylan, Thomas. Dylan Thomas. <laughs> Let's just go super obvious here. <laughs> I think Richard Burton, Russell T. Davis would be my vote for uh, for Welsh influence, or or, or Matthew Rhys. 
I think you've left Jane uh, Jane Austen out of that. I, you know, I I can put her in there. I love Jane Austen, but I just Jane Eyre and Middlemarch. Bronte I know, and Elliot. I know, I know. We've I, done it before, but I, I would stipulate, I would add Austin to the list. All right. Yeah, we're, we are totally answering the family feud, obvious answers, and June is going <laughs> so down like sorry. the fine alleyways. <laughs> going down the alleyways and byways of the A25 and the B56, which I don't know if those are actual roads. I don't know any Okay, okay, wait. What about, um, what about um, a, a, a addictive drawing room novels? A category into which I would put both Wodehouse and Agatha Christie. Oh, two two things that have varying aesthetic responses from Stephen Metcalf, I know, but which to me, like somehow, I spent my entire like suburban American childhood flitting back and forth between Jeeves drawing rooms and like murder-filled drawing rooms, <laughs> and it's just like I was like, God, life over there. Everybody's always going in and out of French doors to gardens and having scones and. There's mm, butlers, butlers galore. Sometimes murderous butlers, sometimes just competent butlers. That was uh, I felt very steeped in in uh, British countryside drawing rooms yeah. between those two plus Jane Austen. Is there any modern music that you guys listen to that you're very conscious of being Britain, like contemporary music? Uh, is PJ? Lily Allen British? Lily Allen is one of my favorite singers of the last ten years, probably. I hope you've watched the bisexual, the the, the uh, Layla, the chief character, who's also the kind of proxy for the author, creator, director. Went to says that she went to Britain to to uh, be close to Lily Allen, <laughs> just to be in the same country. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, PJ Harvey, she's British, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah give, give me some PJ. Bell and um, Sebastian. Okay, oh, can I also do a log roll here? So uh, HBO has a new show called Sally Forever, which my husband has worked on, so I'm utterly conflicted out. <laughs> but um, it is the brainchild of Julia Davis, who is the dark and twisted British comedian who made the original British camping on which the not so well received Lena Dunham adaptation was based and Sally Forever is like the weirdest show I've seen in so long and it makes me laugh so much and Julia Davis is twisted I'm curious for your thoughts on Julia Davis June Thomas I, I am I'm afraid I I, uh, I have no knowledge however I would say that um, twisted and uh, strange are that's kind of the default stage state for British British people generally and certainly British creatives. So um, that's just like, that's the baseline there. So yeah, twisted, strange. Uh, that's normal. Yeah. Oh, I just also have to just shout out my sense of humor and entire sensibility would not be the same if I had not grown up staying up late to watch with my father and siblings and not my mother who didn't like it, Monty Python's Flying Circus. I'm not uh, a fan. Yeah. No, Julia's not a fan. I know. I, I'm not a fan. I grew I'm up in, in a household that was divided between the, you know, those who, who liked them and those who didn't. And I never became, I mean, the movies aren't even that important to me. There's funny passages in all of them. But that show, including the animation, it, it really felt like an import. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly yeah, yeah, when yeah. I was growing up and there were three channels and there wasn't that right. much foreign TV on at all, it was just something that felt completely naughty and, and mm -hmm. subversive and strange and different. Yeah. Well, what about the other part of this question about the cultural export to the mm -hmm. UK or to mm -hmm. the rest of the world that you're most proud of? That it's one... so hard to see, though. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't know. Is it is it just like burgers? Is it like <laughs> Michael Jackson? Is it 
I mean, all of our exports have been so, so seductive and so poisonous at once. It's like everything you want to shout out is also something that's, in a way, narrowed the world and, and homogenized world culture. I was going to say kind of well, Hollywood studio golden age filmmaking, yeah, you know? I mean, there's one, some yeah. incredible works of art that we made in that strange, repressive, horrifying, sexist system. But... Um, but it's also sort of that's sort of like saying, well, McDee's, you know, right, it's right. sort of taken over the no, world. An answer know, that really? people often give is jazz, which I never quite believe that like the six people who listen to jazz oh, may believe pfft. it. But come on, come on! I hey, mean, I'm ja- a jazz changed, listener myself, but, but, but it also it changed the way people conceived of music. I mean, it it you, you don't have everything that come. I mean, you know, Louis Armstrong gave us modern music popular music so i mean that answer comprehends more than just like you know you know a beret wearing twit in a (laughs) tiny club listening to some esoteric you know pianist bang his fists on the piano i mean you know it's anyway i mean you could really say the same of all american music right i mean like everything that's come out of african-american music whether it's jazz or blues or rock or right hip-hop i mean american music has changed the world but again you know it could also be looked at as a a crushing foot that's kind of you know forcing everyone into the no am i being too stamping out the gamelan I think I think with the story so you hear two stories about the beatles that the early beatles when they first started out were hugely influenced by American GIs stationed in uh, uh, in the UK and their rhythm and blues records that they had. And for the first time, you really had some access to, you know, the more hardcore black music coming out in the States in the late 50s and early 60s. They listened to it, they sought it out, they dug it out, and it, and it just completely remade their consciousness. And then the second was when John Lennon met Bob Dylan in person, which is sort of like Melville meeting Hawthorne, right? This moment where you meet this person who just totally rearranges your sense of what the medium you're working in can be. And from that moment on, you're a completely different artist. And the, you know, I mean, those, 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 those are not small interjections of American sensibility into British and their, and then from their world culture. I'm going to bring this, uh, way more, uh, small and also bring down the, the sort of the, um, mm-hmm. bring down the brow and I will say that as <laughs> as an individual um, as, a, as a kid like I grew up in a very like anti-American you know left-wing sort of milieu but I absolutely got addicted to America I wanted to come to America and I did come to America by watching honestly kind of crappy American like cop shows like Kojak mm-hmm. and later like <laughs> Saint Elsewhere and, you know, Cagney and Lacey and shows like that that gave this vision of America as like, or actually an, a cartoon that was mentioned on Lexicon Valley a couple of weeks ago that I hadn't thought about for a long time, but that was actually really like instrumental for me, which was this weird cartoon called Wait Till Your Father Gets Home. Oh my God, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> uh, I used to watch that. Holy yeah, fuck. Um, I have not heard anyone reference that since I watched it in the 70s. Exactly. And I could Holy s- never heard of it. Uh, it, was, it was amazing. It was like, it, it actually looks very much like the Family Guy and those other like yeah. Seth MacFarlane yeah. shows. But Wait it, till the your thing that was, uh, I know, I got my mom and dad and <laughs> oh, my, my sisters f- too and oh, the groovy way we get <laughs> oh along. Oh my God, this is the, the <laughs> Brucean vortex. Oh exactly, my God. exactly. And and it was about, I remember like getting all kinds of crap because it was a, this, it was, you know, your typical thing where like the kids are more hip and the dad's like 
honestly, it's very regressive because he was like, you know, bringing down the hammer um, and kind of cutting off their experimentation and their interests and so on. But he was also he was from right winger who's really obsessed with the minorities. Uh, and, you know, and, and which, of course, like was representative of the time. I guess it was from the 70s. Um, but I remember kind of wanting to know what did it mean minorities? We didn't talk about non-white people as minorities in Britain at the time. Do now, I think. Um, but like that really interested me. And so, like, you know, crummy culture, too, can be very effective. <laughs> <laughs> and the groovy way we get along. This is like some Mom's need a house call Mrs. Mouse shit. What is this show? <laughs> wait till your father gets until your father gets wait till your father gets home. We know. <laughs> oh my god. I love that the very theme song is about like the patriarchy asserting its dominance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Rosebud. <laughs> it's my fucking rosebud. I cannot believe you that is incredible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that both both your import and your export kind of speak to the fact that like you, you can you can try to answer this in this overweening kind of culturally significant way and say, what have we imported or exported that has impacted the most people or something like that? But ultimately, you can't really predict influence like that. Right. right. It could be Kojak sucking his lollipop. Right. That gets you all those years later to, to emigrate to a different country. Exactly, right. Exactly. And of course, it really, the answer is the potato. But yeah, that's too good. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Claire. I'm calling from Seattle. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts were on whether there's a distinction anymore between middlebrow and highbrow in terms of literature and where someone like Elena Ferrante might fall. You know, she's easy to read. She's very popular, but she's also uh, highly critically acclaimed. Um, and then also, you know, people are very quick to admit to watching on TV things that would be considered lowbrow. There's not really any shame in that anymore. But the same doesn't seem to be true for books. Um, so I'm curious if there are any books that would be considered lowbrow that you would admit to loving. Thanks so much. Love the show. Bye. It's interesting because I think that the brow conversation in literature has gotten mixed up with a gender conversation, probably in ways that are appropriate. But I feel like the debate about what types of books get classified as chiclet and whether they should get classified as chiclet and whether sort of you know, domestic works of middle-aged interiority are considered light if they are by and about women and are considered important if they are by or about men and or Carl, uh, what's his name? Carl Overknausgaard. <laughs> yeah, I want to make sure that I, his name was actually Carl because it really seemed like it should be Carl. <laughs> anyway, um, so somehow the, bra- the, the, I agree with this caller that this, the kind of, glib simplicity of like, I read everything, I watch everything. I love Mad Men and I love Housewives. I love this and I love that. The kind of Catholic mix it up culture that applies very much to perception of television now is not quite as untrammeled in bookland. Does that sound right? Uh, I mean, yes, but I think so many of the considerations are commercial. Like, you know, I think you're right that a lot of what we consider literary fiction could also be, or not that we consider, but that is marketed as literary fiction, could potentially make more money if it was sold in as a different genre. And I think maybe 
I don't know, actually, if it's writers who choose whether they're going to be in the literary fiction bucket or the chiclet bucket, to, to put it as an extreme. And I do definitely think that even though I don't think many people at this point, I'm not saying none, but not many people would like sneer at reading, for example, crime fiction in a way that they might about adults reading young adult novels like more than more than once a year. You know, people whose main reading is young adult novels might be the target of some disdain. Um, I don't think reading crime novels really would get that. But I know that, for example, John Banville, the great Irish novelist, when he writes crime fiction, he writes under a different name. He writes as Benjamin Black. And even though those crime novels are then, you know, heaped with praise and treated very seriously, it still seems, it says something that he finds it necessary to do that. So I definitely think, I don't know if I think of it as browse, but I think that we do still think of genre fiction. Books are still reviewed that way. And I think that that reveals that we're not as browless as we might want to claim. I mean, I wouldn't say that I make the claim to be browless with books. I don't think of it in terms of browse, but maybe in the same way that I don't love serialized drama or comedy on TV. Like, I don't love shows that pile up in giant (laughs) stacks that you have to watch every single one. I like the more poppable ones. A lot about genre fiction does not appeal to me for the same reason. Like, I don't want to read a detective series. I know the ton of French novels are supposed to be great, and maybe if I started them, I would love them. But it seems like this big, towering pile of blocks that I have to start disassembling or something Uh. like that. And I kind of prefer a standalone book. Of course, I know that not all genre is is serialized, but that aspect of it is something that doesn't appeal to me as a reader. Then again, we're talking about Ferrante, who I think all three of us loved. She just seems like such an exception. It's hard to kind of compare her to any trend. Mm -hmm. You know, is that middle brow? Is it high brow? Who's it supposed to appeal to? Why was it such a bestseller? I'm almost amazed those books made the impact they did because they are pretty cognitively demanding when you're reading them. But then they were packaged with those covers that were mocked for being so sort of sappy and Hallmark card-like, although the piece ran in Slate about the very deliberate choice of those covers, which were the covers in Italy as well. Um, So I don't know that you can use Ferrante as a test case for, you know, what's high and what's lowbrow. But Mm -hmm. I can can see why that distinction hangs on in reading a little bit longer, because it's more of an investment to read a book, right? It takes a lot less time to watch a crappy episode of Real Housewives and enjoy it for what it is than to make your way through a whole book. So, Mm. and I'm not at all trying to imply that all genre fiction is Real Housewives level prose or something like that. But I don't know, for me, when I pick up a book, I want it to be well-written. If it's not well-written, I can't turn the pages, you know? But I mean, I would say that much crime fiction, I mean, mean, like I recently read Agatha Christie to go back to something that that, uh, Julia said earlier. Like I read an Agatha Christie book when I was traveling. Like I couldn't believe how well it was written. Like I'd forgotten. It had been a long time since I had read one, I guess. And like, she was a great writer. Like, well, Julia, Julia was writer. just mentioning her as one of the yeah. great the great exports. So yeah, yeah. no, I guess I, the, the distinction I just made is going to get me a lot of hate mail. And I am not at all trying to say <laughs> that like only highbrow fiction is worth reading. But I, I think this, this listener is right that there's something going on in that distinction that's not quite settled in the way people think about books. I think if you like, if you look at the trend in criticism over the last 20, 25, 30 years, it's a lot about scrambling or eliminating the brows altogether. You know, I'm thinking of like Louis Manan's work in which he talks about how the brows are sort of a hangover really from a different era, different set of expectations um, about uh, what literature is or had to be or no brow or, all you know, poptimism. I mean, it's kind of leaked through almost all criticism now. And I think it's, it's a, if I, and I'm speaking off the cuff here, but I mean, it's just a vestige of the modernist and high modernist ideal that, 
literature had to be difficult, which was just completely an artifact of a specific era in literary culture, sort of after mass media had come in and there was this question of, well, what what is different between a novel and a film or a poem and a radio play or whatever? And difficulty seemed to be this, this, this mark of distinction that these old pre-mass media literary forms could reserve for themselves and their cultural, uh, cultural authority derived from difficulty and therefore only very smart, very sophisticated people would interact with them. I think that that is almost totally obsolete. I just, how many writers really aspire to this old, I mean, there's a little bit of a kind of, you know, David Foster Wallace, like there's a little bit of leftover literary machismo, write something very long, very challenging, you know, Pinchonian, whatever. But I just, it gets narrower and narrower. I think that the appeal of it and the authority of it really uh, gets narrower and narrower. And I, I just think that there's no way to say how could you possibly ever say of Ferrante that it's either high or middle brow? It, it seems to me the perfect example of something simply being great and it appeals to whom it appeals. Um, uh, and P.S. I love Lee Child. <laughs> You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We have a Twitter feed. Interact with us directly there. We'd love it at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens, June Thomas, and of course, Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy holidays. We will see you soon. Take care. <laughs>